morning, good afternoon, good whatever, whenever, wherever you are listening to the High Motor Podcast. Andrew Doughty here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. You can find High Motor on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, everywhere. You can find High Motor on Twitter at High Motor Pod. We have less than two weeks until Selection Sunday. That is Sunday, March 17th. We have less than two months until the NFL Draft. So last week on High Motor was college football and the NFL Draft. This week on High Motor, college football and the NFL Draft. And our guest this week, Connor O'Gara from Saturday Down South. Ross Uglum from 24-7 Sports and Cheesehead TV. Ross was in Indianapolis this week for the NFL Combine. Lots to chat about. And then at the end, we're going to do a movie of the week. So that'll be later. But before we get humming, a quick plug for next week on the podcast. And I'm looking forward to this one. It's going to be, well, I look forward to everyone. It's kind of like a a cinnamon roll every week. It's like a freshly baked cinnamon roll every single Tuesday. When when are you not going to look forward to that? I mean, especially those that are baked like a croissant. I had another one of those this weekend. If you've never had a croissant-inspired cinnamon roll, not one of those croissants with like icing and cinnamon and crap on top. It's it's the same type of like croissant dough, but in cinnamon roll form. And to be very clear, I am not assaulting regular cinnamon rolls here. Please do not get that idea. I would never do that. I'm just saying, if you've never had a croissant-inspired, croissant-inspired cinnamon roll, you know what? Hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter, at HighMotorPod or at AdowDy88. Give me your city. Give me where you're going this weekend, wherever. I'm going to give you a croissant-inspired cinnamon roll nearby. I will run through my Rolodex, and I'm going to find you a croissant-inspired cinnamon roll. All right, please allow me to get back on track here. Next week on High Motor, recently I spoke with a few guys who've been on the losing end of some of the most iconic shots NCAA tournament history. And... Those guys are going to give you a window into that moment from them. We're not going to talk about the side of Christian Leitner and those Duke players. We're not going to talk about the side of Bryce Drew and those 1998 Valpo players. This is going to be a window into the losing side of it, the shock of it, the postgame locker room, going home, seeing that replay, always being asked about it. So that's next week on High Motor, Tuesday, March 12th. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spreaker, whatever app you're using to listen. Hit subscribe. You'll get notified when that episode drops. All right, let's get rolling. Let's get Connor O'Gara on for some college football talk. We have Connor O'Gara on the horn this week. He's calling in from Orlando. Hey, Connor. So I've gone back and forth in this for several weeks, and maybe you can push me in one direction here. I drove through Orlando a few weeks back. I think it was like the first week of February, last week of January, somewhere in there, and the traffic was unlike anything I have ever seen in my life. I've driven like into or through most metropolitan areas. Honestly, what was happening down there in Orlando was so far above and beyond anything I could have ever expected. Like if there's some it's not as bad as LA, obviously, San Francisco, but if there's like an expected traffic per capita. I think Orlando just completely blew it out of the water. The level of construction down there was just obscene. Like every single highway, every on-ramp, every off-ramp, everything was under major construction. It was like a weekday. I think it was like a Thursday at 11 a.m. and complete complete gridlock. So I've gone back and forth on this. It first started as just pure anger toward anything and everything Orlando. 
everything, every politician who thought it was a good idea to redo every road, every resident who lives there, Disney, anything associated with the city of Orlando. Then I kind of felt bad for residents like yourself who are dealing with that. Should I feel bad for you or should I direct some portion of that angst towards you? What is fair for that? You bring up a good point about the per capita thing because that's the problem is that the traffic on I-4 is so bad because it's almost like Orlando like didn't realize how much it was going to grow when you know Disney World is obviously expanded into what it is, but then it's not just Disney World. You know, it's Universal, which is just growing and adding things every year, and the theme park industry is so massive. But like, it's on, on top of that, you know, it's still a major city. It's you know got professional sports teams, and it's got attractions and stuff. So it's like this combination of all of those things, and the highways have just never been big enough. So they decided to undergo this massive project on I-4, and now it's just terrible. I fortunately work from home. I'm about nine miles north of downtown, and my wife works five minutes away. We're actually a one-car household because we never have to go on I-4 for any, really like anything unless you know we're going down to Universal or if we're going to like a Magic Game or something. But yeah, it's it is absolutely brutal, and I you know. Don't feel bad for me. Feel bad for the people that have to commute on it every single day because it, it can make a sane person um, absolutely lose it. Yeah, I just pulled it up. Like I mentioned the per capita thing. I know that Orlando is a big city, but like as of 2017, the estimate was only 280,000 people. The metro was an estimate of 2.4 million. That's 24th biggest in the U.S. So we're not even talking about like a top 10 city. And to have that level, is it that bad even when these highway projects are not going on? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen what it's like when the highway projects um, aren't going on because it's just always been there. I mean, I've been here for three and a half years now, and it's been a constant project the entire time. So, yeah, I, I have no idea, like, what it's going to look like when there aren't a bunch of construction cones and, and all that that junk on the side of the road. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, just poorly constructed roads. I mean, I-4 just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The exits are, are set up in an inconvenient way that has to deal with a lot of, like, Merging from three lanes down to one, and it's like, yeah, whoever designed the city had no idea what to expect. Yeah, and the great news is that it doesn't look like it's anywhere near completed, so you have so you have that to look forward to. Let's hey, let's talk about some college football. I want to talk about this NCAA targeting proposal. I haven't done a podcast on it since it came out last week, and I want to get your take on it. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, last I think it was last Friday, like last Friday afternoon, the, the rules committee uh, released a proposal for a change to targeting. Uh, I saw the headline. It was from uh, the NCAA website. It said, Football Rules Committee Proposes Modifying Targeting Protocols. And I'm thinking, awesome, right? You know, it's about time the targeting rules are complete trash. And then you start reading it, and nope, they're actually making it worse. Um, so a right now, a quick review for those of you who have been living in a barn for the last few years. You're ejected for targeting. Um, you miss the entire game if it's in the first half. You're out for the second half. If it's the second half, you're out for the first half of the next game. So the proposed rule is... If a player gets a second target in a season, the language is, in addition to being disqualified from that game, the player would be suspended for the team's next contest. Connor, what are we doing here? You know, it almost seems like they wanted to... That the root of the problem, the very root of the problem, was that these snap decisions were being made on the field, and if they couldn't find evidence to overturn something, then it was going to cost the player the rest of the game, and then they'd be suspended for the first half of the next game. So potentially like a full game it was going to cost them. And I think the, the, the 
the change of the rule and what it was hoping to do was to tweak that process so now it really has to be obvious. It really has to be this egregious thing that's confirmed by the booth and, and they can view it and, and replay it and look at all the different angles and say definitively, yeah, that's definitely targeting in every way, shape, or form. And I think the hope was that that was going to help this process. Now, the problem is that from a PR standpoint and from what the NCAA is trying to do to try and make the game safer and all those things, you have to have a little bit more than of a severe punishment on the other end, at least in their eyes, which is if it is egregious targeting, okay, look, we can make this punishment even more severe. I'd argue you don't need to do that. And missing the rest of the game and kicking a kid out is pretty much you know, driving the point home don't need to suspend a kid for an entire another game. So, I mean, it, it is a problem, but I think that's where they were coming at from, from the just the PR standpoint of trying to make the game safer and that it, it's a little bit of like, a, oh, we'll do one thing here to help this process. We're going to do this other thing to make it look like we're making the game safer and, and not that we're just making these rules um, easier for people to break. So, yeah, I mean, it is messed up from a variety of, a variety of standpoints, but we're going to have now even more situations where there's going to be like Devin Whites where we're going to see these guys get suspended for meaningful games and people are still going to be really upset and that's going to be the problem with this. Yeah, and I I think we're on the same page here. When I, cause I, I kind of touched on that. When I first saw the headlines and started reading it, I, I, I was encouraged. I thought, okay, we're finally going to have you know, levels or grade like a, like a flagrant one, flagrant two type of situation where if there there are egregious hits, there absolutely are. I mean, I don't think anybody's denying that. There are guys out there that unfortunately are trying to knock somebody's head off, and that has no place in the game, especially with what we've learned over the last uh, 10 or some odd years with head injuries. So I think that there should be levels, and that's what I was expecting. And you touched on it there at the end. We're going to have cases where players are just missing games for really questionable calls. And I, I think that... What really changed it for me, I've always thought it was a crap rule, but really changed it for me, I think the boiling point was watching the regular season finales last year, and these seniors were getting tossed like in the first quarter of their final college game for, for really mild, innocent hits. And if this rule passes, whether it's this year or next year or whenever, that's going to happen. But let's say it happens like in the second-to-last regular season game. like The team maybe isn't going to a bowl game. Senior game is next week, and now you're just not a part of it. Or... Like, you're missing full conference title games. You're going to be missing full playoff games. I mean, what if this happens in the first quarter of the regular season finale to you know Ohio State or Alabama or whoever, and they're playing in the SEC championship game, the Big Ten championship game, for a pretty mild hit? So we're talking about a guy missing the entire conference championship game or missing a playoff game for this? Don't you feel like we're kind of almost going in the wrong direction of penalizing student-athletes when they didn't actually do anything wrong? Or is that just kind of follow suit for what the NCAA usually does. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of follow suit. And, you know, I, I think back to watching the, the 2015, after the 2015 season, um, watching the Fiesta Bowl, and Joey Bosa's career came to an end right. on a very questionable targeting call. And it's like, you see him walking off the field, and he's just kind of in disbelief, like, holy crap, like, my college career is over. I mean, everybody knew that he was going to be a top draft pick at that point, and you know, I was like, "Wow, this is this is pretty ridiculous that this rule is, is going to have such a big impact on the way that you know that that his career and his legacy is going to be kept off." And I think that we are going to see situations like this. It's become it's going to become an even bigger issue. But if the NCAA is going in this direction, I mean, they're not going to suddenly turn back around and be like, "Yeah, actually, you know what? Let's take away that that one that 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 
game and a half suspension, essentially, of what it could become. I mean, and as you point out, if you get this in the first quarter, it's like a two-game suspension. And that is unbelievable at the amateur level. I'd almost get it more at the NFL when these guys are more developed and they know when they're making an egregious hit and they have you know, enough control of their bodies. But, like, I mean, I can get into an entire discussion about the development of tackling and how that has been really put on the back burner. And some kids just flat out don't know how to have form tackling yet and, and mistakes are made. And to say that a mistake like that should cost somebody two games, potentially a couple of postseason games, I mean, these are going to be big storylines. This isn't going anywhere. I don't think that we're going to get to a point where we're really happy about this um, for a very long time. Yeah, and I don't think it's even a, a this isn't going anywhere. I think it's actually getting worse. I think you, I, you didn't mean that it's not getting worse, but I think it's getting worse because, like I said, I was extremely encouraged, but I feel like now we're going in the wrong direction and we're going to go so far in the wrong direction that we're not just going to completely um, flip course. All right, let's 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 change gears here. So also, late last week, uh, news dropped of this floated, I don't even know if it was an actual proposal, kind of just this floated Pac-12, Big 12 scheduling partnership, and it, kind of the same thing when I first reacted to it. First, I see the headlines start reading. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, it could be like an an ACC Big Ten Challenge type of arrangement. One game every year, one non-conference game. Each team plays another team from the other conference. It rotates. Great. Definitely interested in that. It's a way for every member to play at least one decent team. It's a way for every member to get one team uh, you know, to their location. I know some teams don't always want to play a road game. Um, in Lubbock or, or at Berkeley or whatever, and then it completely changed. And, and I started reading about it, and they want it to be every non-conference game for every team. And then that escalates further by saying they want this Pac-12, Big 12 conference championship game. They basically want like a Rose Bowl with the Big 12. So my question for you is, do you think that this is something that – it doesn't seem like this is going to happen, but I was kind of surprised at the reactions to it. It got a lot more – um, approval. I don't think everybody agree with every single piece of it, especially the last piece, having the, the so-called non-conference champions play in the end. So I don't think that got that much love, but I was surprised at the positive reactions to it. So do you think this is something that is realistic for college football, or this is just a wild plan hatched up that we're never going to see again? I think this is a bit more of a wild plan because um, in theory, you know, it, it makes some sense, and that's probably why it got such a positive reaction, is everybody wants to see these Power 5 teams face each other in non-conference play. There are more and more teams now in the Big Ten that don't have a non-conference Power 5 opponent. And look at a schedule like Arkansas. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it yet. It is a joke, an absolute joke, what they are facing in non-conference play next year. And I think anything that goes against that, we as college football fans say, yeah, Sign me up. So Big 12, Pac-12 matchup, great. That, that'd be awesome. The problem, though, is from a logistics standpoint, if you are making this a conference versus conference thing, there are five power five conferences. You would essentially have one conference that is going to maybe have to sit, have to have 10 power five games on its schedule or, you know, 11 potentially, depending on what you're looking at here. So that's the issue is that not everybody is going to have a perfect pair because there's not the same amount of, of teams if you go one, you know, each conference versus each conference. So I, I, I'm struggling with some of the logistics of it. But, you know, I'd like to get to a, a, a situation in which everybody is playing the same amount of, of power five opponents. I mean, I think at this point we should definitely be able to, to regulate that. There's no excuse for why we can't get there. And I think that if 
any step that that allows us to get in that direction, I, I'm I'm in favor of. Now the the postseason game is I, I don't know how that's going to be how that's going to be regulated. And, and you know, you bring up the Rose Bowl. Obviously, the big the Big Ten and, and the Pac-12 or what was formerly known as the, the the Pac-10. You know, they've had this agreement for a very long time, and it's and it's been relatively successful. But it's changed over the years, and the playoff has changed that. The, the, the basic structure of this whole thing is now different. So I, I don't know how that would work. Um, the SEC and ACC seem like the most likely partners to want to do something like that. But um, again, you know, that, that kind of there there would be a lot of logistical issues to have to work out. But yeah, I mean, let, let's get let's get as many of these Power Five teams facing each other in non-conference play as possible. Yeah, you mentioned having a level playing field, and I completely agree with you. And I think most people agree you'd like to see. Every Power Five conference play the same number of games. I mean, we've we've talked a lot the last few years. Everyone's kind of beaten this to death. Eight conference games versus nine. Some people even want to go to ten. And I guess the realistic part of it is if the Pac-12 and Big 12 do it, then everybody's going to be screaming for other conferences to do it, whereas the SEC has made it very clear. They've, they've given no indication they'd even be interested in this because when people are pushing for nine conference games, the SEC has basically said, okay, you know, we, we don't care. This playoff thing is working out for us pretty well. Why would we ever do that? So I, I don't see any any scenario in which if the SEC is sitting here right now saying we don't even want to go to nine conference games, at, at what point would they even have incentive? And maybe it could change if we go to an 18 playoff or 12 or 16 or whatever ends up happening five years down the road. But sitting here right now, they've made it very clear they don't need to change. Honestly, I don't. I completely agree with them. As much as I'd like to see nine or ten conference games, I don't see why the SEC needs to change. It's working out very well for them. So, for me, it doesn't even seem like a realistic proposal. College football wide, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, let's let's get it to eight conference games. I mean, let's get it to eight. Let's let these teams have two power five non-conference games. I mean, I think that's the way to go about it. That way, if you do want to have these Big Twelve versus Pac twelve type things. There's still room in the schedule for that, and then they're going to still have another uh, Power Five non-conference game to fill on their schedule. And logistically speaking, that makes a little bit more sense. But yeah, I mean, there's the SEC and ACC aren't going to change unless somebody makes them. I mean, Craig Sankey has made that perfectly clear, even though they've talked about, oh, there are conversations, you know, and they'll probably say that when they have these meetings in Destin, Florida. The only conversation is, you know, are, are we doing what we need to do to maximize our playoff potential? And right now, the SEC is absolutely doing that. There's a reason the SEC and the ACC are the only two Power Five conferences who have had a playoff bid every single year, and it is directly related to the way their conference schedule structure is gone. And you know, the Big Ten decided to make that change, and ever since they made that change, their their conference champion hasn't made it to the playoff. Right. So yeah, I mean, the proof is in the pudding there, and I, I, it's, nothing's going to make them change or allow us to get to that point unless the NCAA is stepping in and saying, "Here's how things are going to go." Let's stay in the SEC. Last week, or within the last week or two, you wrote a feature with Joe Moorhead on SaturdayDownSouth.com. It's called Fried Catfish Tattoos and Dollar General Trips, how Joe Moorhead is fitting in and doubling down in year two. Uh, really simple question. What is your feeling around him entering year two? You know, I'm still really confident in him. And I, I think that, you know, last year, you know, I, I might have jumped the gun a bit by looking at what they had in terms of returning production and you know they had more returning production than anybody in the sec and i thought you know morehead and, and mullen with their systems as comparable not the same but comparable i thought that that would be a good fit to maximize what they were able to do and from a defensive standpoint they i, I would argue that they exceeded expectations i mean that, 
lights out on that side of the ball. Jeffrey Simmons and Montez Wet were special players for them. But offensively, it was just a tough fit, you know, and it was a tough transition for for Joe Moorhead, who has had a quarterback in Trace McSorley who can stretch the field, and Nick Fitzgerald couldn't do that. And now, with Keaton Thompson having had over a year to work with Moorhead, and, you know, the the criticism against him is the same exact thing with Fitzgerald. It's, it's an accuracy issue. I mean, even when Keaton Thompson beat Lamar Jackson in the tax player bowl, he completed like 13 of 31 passes. I mean, this is somebody that is absolutely a project, and Moorhead's ability to find ways to maximize his accuracy to improve in those areas, and then also to get the kind of skill players that they need at the receiver positions. I mean, you look back at those Penn State teams, and they were loaded with pass catchers. It wasn't just Saquon Barkley that could make plays for them, and that's what this offense needs to really get to that level. Now, I do like their potential. I love a guy like Kylan Hill. If he can stay healthy in that offense, what he can do as somebody who can catch passes and run the ball, I think he is an ideal fit in Joe Moorhead's system. I am still high on Mississippi State because I'm a believer that Moorhead's system, while it does take a little bit of time, it works. He's succeeded at every place that he has gone. His offense has always put up big numbers, and this is somebody who is going to figure it out. And I, I think that Mississippi State is going to take that next step as being a team that is you know, in the top 15 conversation on a yearly basis. And I know that's tough to say after what they just lost from a talent perspective, but, I, I mean, you look at the recruiting classes that, that Moorhead has been able to put together and how much of that has been south of the Mason-Dixon. Every recruit he signed in his most recent class south of the Mason-Dixon. And that, with the exception of, I believe, uh, Kareem Walker, who's the former Michigan, uh, former blue-chip recruit from Michigan who transferred to, to JUCO. But, you know, you look at those things like that and you think he's got everything working in his favor. And I'm just a believer in his mindset and, and the confidence that he has in his team. I came away from that conversation with him being more convinced than ever that, that he's going to be the guy to lead Mississippi State um, to that next level and build on what Dan Mullen had in the you know the nine years that he was in Starkville. In that story, there's a quote. Um, let me grab it. It says, uh, from Moorhead, and I quote, I didn't take this job to say we're fired up about eight wins in a good bowl game. If that were the case, I would have stayed two hours from home being the offensive coordinator at Penn State and continuing to try to have success there. First of all, talk me off the ledge here. Am I reading way too much into that second part about Penn State? Is he saying that Penn State is just an eight-win program? And then second part, he's leading a program that, that's kind of been exactly that. You know, It's a program that's largely been fired up to win eight or nine games and reach a good bowl game over its history. Do you... So you, it seems like you have optimism. You said a top 15 program, but do you have optimism that he can even go farther by building on what Mullen created and then contend for annual playoff spots? Yeah, no, the, the, the quote was uh, about eight wins um, was him saying that he wasn't satisfied with his 2018 performance. Right. He gave okay. himself a, a B as a, as a grade. He wasn't saying that Penn State was an eight-win program. Right. Okay. Uh, he was saying, you know, if he wanted to, if he wanted to just be content, he would have just been the offensive coordinator at Penn State, put up a ton of points, and, and, and done that. And if he was satisfied, you know, he'd be. If he was satisfied right now, he'd be like, "Yeah, life's good. We're we're okay." But he's like, you know, we'll know where we want to be as a program. I mean, he, I really, I, I really do believe that he believes that he has what it takes to take Mississippi State, a program without much history, to that spot where they are competing for SEC championships. And I think that in that division, that's obviously extremely difficult. I mean, Dan Mullen only had one season with a winning record in conference play. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable considering how much of a mountain he really had to overcome there. And, 
you know, I, I do think that Moorhead is the guy that's going to provide that stable base. Maybe it's kind of like what, what Michigan State had a little bit, where Michigan State all of a sudden, Mark D'Antonio, took that next step. And on a yearly basis, you know, they looked like they were contenders. They could have that occasional season where they could have just the right combination of seniors, where they could win an SEC, where they could win a conference championship. And I think that maybe Moorhead is going to be kind of like that at Mississippi State. And, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time, and I'm not necessarily saying that they're going to win a conference championship this year or anything like that, but I, I tend to believe that, that the floor with him is extremely high, and when he gets his guy in there at the quarterback position, they're able to do some things at receiver. Uh, that, that place has plenty of potential to, to do some big things. You tweeted the other day, that was last Friday, that you were doing some multitasking. You were watching the Combine, and you were ranking the top 64 episodes of The Office. I assume that's for an office uh, bracket with Selection Sunday approaching on the 17th. I was considering doing a top 64 characters bracket, but I haven't decided if that's in the cards yet. Have you finished the top 64 episodes? And if so, are you willing to let us in on the number one seeds in each region? I have so what we're gonna do? Actually, um, let me let me ask you this first. How how impossible is it to rank the episodes? Oh, it's impossible. And to be honest, and what I was gonna say is, I'm I'm actually not even finished uh, with the ranking process yet, um, just because it's extremely difficult. I basically broke it up into. Um, I, I I went back and looked at every single episode. You know, just searched all all the episodes, all that stuff, and I broke it up into three categories. My um, Basically, my, my my possible number one seed, my, my all-time classic episodes, that was one category. My really, really solid episodes, I'm going to watch that at any given time. And then there is my, eh, you should probably make the list. Um, it had 64 episodes, of, you know, a show that had, I believe, 202 episodes. So it's essentially like one in every three is going to make the list. Um, so I, I broke it up into those categories, and I think I had about 12 um, listed as my um, possible as, as my options for uh, for my number one seeds, and it'll be a consensus ranking if and when we do this um, with my SDS podcast co-host Chris Marler. Um, so it won't just be what I have to say about it, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, I am a big believer that um, the dinner party is the single best episode of The Office, hands down. Um, can watch that at any given time. The amount of classic lines that come from that show, from that episode specifically, I, I just—it's I, the perfect episode. I, I, I just don't think that you can beat it. It's classic Michael Scott. It's Michael and Jan. It—you it, it, get the the Dwight Allman when he brings in, you know, his babysitter, and Jim is asking her for email, and she's like, "What's email?" Um, that to me, Alzheimer. Um, I, I think there are a few others that belong in there. I have always been a big fan of the injury. I think the injury is the best episode from the first three seasons, just because you get all these great elements. Anytime it's Michael seeking attention, to me that is that is Michael Scott at his best. So that that to me is like an easy easy lock for a number one seed. Um, and then you know I I also you know I get sappy. I love my, the Michael finale episode. I love um, you know the, the the overall finale. I think was extremely well done. I love Goodbye Toby. Um, there are a lot. It was really difficult to come up with this list. Yeah, you mentioned the injury one. I think that one, it, it almost strikes a unique chord because, yes, The Office does a good job of not making things the, the same and, and dry like a lot of you know sitcoms or single cameras struggle with. But when in the injury, like one one part in particular is when 
Dwight and and Pam's relationship completely changed because he's so out of it. But when are you guys going to drop that if it does come out? Maybe a week from Monday. Uh, we're still kind of in the, the working phase of, of that, but uh, we're, we're hoping to, and like I said, not officially yet, but we're hoping to be able to come up with a, a bracket for all of these and then have people vote on them and then we can come up with our, our, our best episode of, of The Office according to um, our listeners. But yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, we did in the off season, we did, um, you know, we did the, the every SEC, um, every SEC team is an office character. And it was a lot of fun. It was a ton, a ton of fun. And this, that's the beauty of the off season that we can just combine the office into what we're doing and, and pretend like it's work. Yep. Annual tradition of, of when college football, college basketball off season hits. All right. That's Connor O'Gara. From Saturday Down South, Saturday Tradition, on Twitter, he's at CJ O'Gara. Always a pleasure. Uh, enjoy that Orlando construction this week for me. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Take it easy. Ross Uglum joining the show after covering the NFL Combine in Indianapolis. And, Ross, let's let's start at the top here. You've been saying for a while now that Quinnen Williams is your number one overall prospect, and that did not change in Indy. It seems like from your from your tweets, if anything else, he really solidified himself atop your big board. You had him there before the combine. And I think you tweeted something to the effect of after he ran, yup, Quentin Williams is number one. Why do you have Williams at number one? And why do you think, I don't want you to speak for anybody else here, but why do you think most others don't have him number one? I mean, it's, it's just a personal preference thing. I think really those top three and now with Brian Burns' performance at the combine, probably the top four, are relatively indistinguishable, and I've always said that. Um, I didn't have Burns included in that group before. But as far as Josh Allen, uh, Joey Bosa, and Quinnen, three edge rushers and an interior defensive lineman, uh, as, as far as the overall grade, you know, or what you, you see from them, it's always been, you know, kind of the same plateau for me. Uh, so for me to have Quinnen uh, a little bit ahead of Joey, a lot of that just has to do with uh, the injury history with Bosa. And, you know, really me not being able to find a huge red flag with Quentin Williams. I mean, he's a interior disruptor. He's going to dominate the run game, and he's going to provide pass rush. And interior pass rush um, is difficult, and that's why, you know, you don't – there aren't six or seven interior pass rushes in every draft. There's a three. Um, and so you, you, you get your number one pressure on the quarterback or the most disruptive pressure is putting a center or a guard in his lap or discarding a center of a guard and, and getting the quarterback, you know, right to his face as opposed to wheeling around a, an offensive tackle like most sacks come from. Uh, disruption of the passing game is just a huge thing, and frankly, all four of those guys do it, but Quinnen does it, and his performance at the Combine really solidified him as, you know, a top-level blue-chip athlete, and that's how you saw, like, his teammate Jonathan Allen a uh, very good player, but a guy whose tape kind of looked like Quinnen's, and then he tested out as a pretty average athlete. Got pushed down, I think, to the, the – well, I know he plays for Washington, but I think he got pushed down into the early teens. That won't happen with Quinnen because he tested averagely at nothing. I mean, he is a stud. So you mentioned Brian Burns being in the top four there. Where has his his transition up top your big board kind of gone over the last three or four months? Was he always in that first group there? Or has he risen a lot for you? No, he's he's risen for me, uh, and I think he's kind of risen for everybody. 
as you you go through the tape, he's a very very young guy. I was twenty, uh, been been playing at Florida State since he's a true freshman, uh, but but a very successful pass rusher. People were worried about his weight, so as soon as he got into the combine and weighed in the way he weighed in, added that weight, added that muscle, and then moved like a strong safety. Um, he he just solidified everything because. The red flags on him were not on tape. The red flags were, can you really play, you know, edge at 230 pounds? Well, he came in weighing 249. And, you know, he, he, he's shown that uh, even carrying 20 extra pounds of muscle, he's not limited in the way that he moves. So that's, I think, really what what moved him up. And then there were guys that fell. Ja'Kai Polite, who was a guy that I would have had Ahead of Burns, just on film alone, he fell. Um, Cleveland Farrell, really, from from Clemson, really, in my opinion, solidified me having Burns ahead of him. Just because there are athletic gifts, you know, that he is maybe missing a little bit. He's still going to be a very productive player in the NFL. But you're not looking for, you know, quote-unquote, very productive players in the top five. You're looking for studs. You're looking for field tilters. You're looking for game changers. And Brian Burns has the potential to be that, not only because of what he did at Florida State, but because uh, the testing that he put forth here shows that he is, you know, a once-in-a-generation athlete. He measured in, you know, in the 99th percentile of, of edge rushers historically when uh, you put together all of his measurables and kind of combine them the way that Kent Lee Platty does with his relative athletic score. You mentioned Ja'Kai Polite in there, and I want to kind of go back to him because he's a guy that had a really interesting combine. Uh, the comments about the Packers interview, which clearly seemed to be blown way out of proportion. I think you were actually there. But then you tweeted, uh, I think either right after or the next day, you said, and I quote, I am infinitely more worried about his poor testing and injury slack, uh, slash fake injury, whatever it was. Run us through Polite's time in Indianapolis as you saw it and now how you currently see him. Yeah, I mean, Ja'Kai, when he got up there, he was just very, very blunt with us, extremely up front, and, and mentioned, you know, that most of the teams outside of the Rams were kind of picking at him. He used the word bashing. Um, but then went on to say, you know, that he understands that it's part of their job to pick at him, to find out what he's all about, and, and, and basically said he has no ill will towards anybody that, you know, that did. Uh, the issue, of course, you know, came when, um, people thought he was whining. I don't really see it that way. I think he was just telling everybody that uh, he has character issues or character concerns. They were trying to, A, figure out if that was real, and B, um, see if they could get a rise out of him and see if he handled it poorly. Uh, the, the media, I think, just blew that one out of proportion a little bit, though. I mean, he could have handled that better as well. And, and what my, my overarching point really is with Ja'Kai is that he needed to be better prepared uh, for this whole thing. I don't know where he was training, but his technique in the 40-yard dash was not good. Um, his prep for the media interview portion was not great. And things that I'm hearing you know, are that maybe the team interviews didn't go all that well either. Again, some of that falls on him, no question about it, but the people getting him ready for this event did not do a very good job. And for him to get back into the first round, 
uh, he needs to have a really good pro day at Florida because the 10-yard split was bad. The actual 40 was, was fine. You know, a 4-8 for a defensive lineman is fine. It's, it's not disqualifying, but it's not good either. You know, when you got Montez Sweat running a 4-4-1, um, it, it, it makes you not look as athletic. And you've got, you know, Brian Burns running a 4-5-1, three inches taller than you. It's, it's an issue, but he's got to have a good three-cone time in, in uh, Gainesville. He's got to run the 40 better than that. Uh, he just needs to be ready to rock for that pro day, and I'm really glad that it's at the end of the month and it's not on Friday or something because some of these schools um, are, are, are really, you know, pro day is pretty shortly after the combine, and even just in the track testing stuff, he needs to be better, better prepared. Yeah, Polite was a guy that was, you know, I don't know how you would say it more than I can, but, you know, tied to the Packers in some way, shape, or form. And obviously you spoke with them that talked about that interview. And you cover the Packers for Cheesehead TV. Uh, Packers have number 12, number 30, and number 44, which is kind of interesting in, in his case because a lot of the people, I'm not sure exactly where you were on this, a lot of people thought he was a potential top 15 pick. Now it's looking like if the Packers did want him at 30 or 44, he should be there at, he could be there at 30, he could be there at 44. And, I know that you, like a lot of other Packers writers and a lot of other NFL writers, have reminded everybody kind of of the obvious that 12, excuse me, like 15 or 20 guys can't be in that they won't be there at 12 list. I mean, math just doesn't work that way. 11 guys will be gone for 412, so the 20 guys can't be on that they won't be their list. And then on uh, Monday morning, you tweeted that if you had to guess which eight guys uh, won't be there at number 12, you said... Uh, Bosa, Quinnen Williams, Kyler, Haskins, Greedy Williams, DK Metcalf, Josh Allen, and Devin White. You don't think that they'll be there at 12. I think you said if, if gun to your head, those are the ones you guessed. But which ones of those, if any, could you see dropping to 12 and that the Packers need to take absolutely if they do drop to 12? Well, I mean, I think it could happen to Devin White, certainly. Um, off-ball linebacker is not a premium position in the NFL anymore. I would argue Devin White's not even the best linebacker in this class at this point, but he's a guy that could fall. It, it does happen. Um, you know, they took Roquan Smith pretty early. Chicago did last year, but I'm not even sure Devin is on that level. You've seen other years where the, you know, top linebacker doesn't go to the teens, um, or a guy like Miles Jack, and that was injury related, but, you know, a guy like Miles Jack just goes to the second round. So these guys. Are, are not necessarily at a, at a prime, prominent position. That's his deal. But other than that, you know, Haskins, it could happen to Haskins. Frankly, it could happen to Kyler if this thing with Arizona, you know, supposedly having told people that it was a done deal, they were going to take him at one and trade Rosen. You know, if that doesn't happen, he could fall. But ultimately, you know, with, with the – the Drew Locke to Denver talk because Elway loves him. Um, and, and then, you know, the other two quarterbacks being what I think, you know, are day one starters. You're in a situation where you probably have three QBs uh, and, and that pushes the rest of those guys down the line. The other one, I think that you probably mentioned there was Greedy Williams, just because there are people that don't even have him at the top corner available and corner in general is just not considered to be, a, you know, a uh, impressive, impressive part of this draft. They are, uh, as, as my friend John Lanyard said, 
the, the ones that look good on tape are slow, and the ones that have bad tape are fast, which is not a completely ideal situation. Devin White, you're not even sure if he's still the the top linebacker on there. I'm not sure if you've like fully adjusted your big board um, after Indianapolis, but is, does that mean that you would lean toward a guy like Devin Bush over Devin White? Yeah, there have been no adjustments to my big board um, over at fanspeak.com. I just haven't had the time. We've got so much stuff going on, but, you know, there's no point in – I don't take it down, you know, and then redo it and put it back up. When there's an update, there will be an update. Uh, and that is – yeah, that's my guy, Devin Bush. Um, in, in my opinion, Devin Bush has better tape than Devin White. They tested out almost identically athletically. And the inch – and it is an inch – uh, between the two of them is not enough for me to flip-flop them. I, I don't think that, you know, Devin Bush being 5'11 even and Devin White being six foot even in today's NFL is going to make a hill of beans a difference. If you have size concerns about Devin Bush at 5'11, 231, you better have those same concerns about Devin White at six foot 231. It's just not enough of a difference, and Bush does a lot better job of playing under control and of understanding what he's asked in the defense and making, you know, sure, solid plays. And I, I love Devin White. I mean, I, I like him as a player. He's a top 20 guy for me, but he needs to break down and make a few more tackles as opposed to just, you know, running around out there like his hair's on fire. So a guy like Devin Bush, do you think that 12 is absolutely way too early for a guy like Devin Bush, even though you like him? And then is 30 too late for them to get him there? Uh, yeah, I think that might be the problem. I think that might be the uh, overarching issue there. Um, it's, it's just that he's going to probably go to a team like Pittsburgh that's trying to replace Ryan Shazier and not make it to 30. So do you move up for him? I don't know, probably not. And in my, you know, time studying this game, especially, and I was saying this, you know, when, when, when Minnesota Vikings fans were talking about winning a Super Bowl with Adrian Peterson, even in the 08, 09, you know, 10 years ago I was saying this, is that it's just not that league anymore. That's not what it's about. You need to, and this is my order, my personal order, is passers, then pass rushers, then pass protectors, then pass defenders, and finally pass catchers. So those would be, you know, bluntly that it'd be quarterback, then you've got pass rushers, then you've got offensive linemen with an emphasis on, on tackles, then you got defensive back with an emphasis on corners, and then after that, wide receivers and tight ends. After you get through all those guys, then for me, it's running backs and linebackers. Just the way that the league is, you know, moving now. And even after you get to running backs and linebackers, it's the ones that can affect the pass game that have even more value, like a Le'Veon Bell, like a James White with you know, uh, with uh, New England. These guys, uh, and, and, and both of them, I think, in, in my opinion, do project as true three-down linebackers, guys that you don't have to take off the field, like a Bobby Wagner or, or Luke Keekley. But for me, I need that that premium position at 12. Uh, 30 can be what you would call a bonus pick, uh, unless a guy is just a complete outlier. And I think TJ Hawkinson is more of a complete outlier at tight end than White or Bush are at, at off-ball linebacker. So I, I need a Montez Sweat or a Brian Burns uh, to fall to 12, 
or I'm going to just beef up the interior pass rush to kind of an absurd degree by drafting Ed Oliver, or if, if Greedy Williams is there, fine. Now you have two corners over six foot two that aren't Jair Alexander, who might be one of the better undersized corners in all of football. Those are the types of things that I need to accomplish at 12, not probably adding an off-the-ball linebacker. Last thing for you here, you're up in Fargo, so you cover NDSU um, last couple of years with Easton Stick. What is your stock report on Stick? Did that change at all in Indianapolis? Uh, it, it went up. You know, um, He did an excellent job with uh, – he did an excellent job, in my opinion, with the interview process with the media. Um, you know, I, I, of course, covered Eastern during his time at North Dakota State, and there were a lot of questions about, um, you know, his time with Carson and, and Carson this and Carson that. And that's something that he, uh, you know, finally thought maybe he was passed. I talked to him about it multiple times in North Dakota State, how many interviews he had had without the mention of his predecessor. And um, it just was a thing that, that, you know, would have bothered the heck out of me, but he handled it very well. And then he, he frankly, tested out as an elite-level athlete, uh, one of the better ones to test at the quarterback position in a very, very long time, really nailed the three-cone drill, um, which, you know, maybe isn't incredibly important for quarterbacks, but just as value to a roster, I mean, the guy is you know, almost a safety or wide receiver from a from a strict athleticism standpoint. I mean, he, he's very, very, very impressive. And, and so throwing the ball, I don't think he helped hurt himself. Athletic testing definitely helped himself, and I would assume that he helped himself, you know, in the meeting rooms because I know how smart the kid is and I know how highly his coaches speak of him. What's this? What's the ceiling there for him? Is that is he a a late day two guy? Can he get that high? Maybe. I mean, I've always said from the beginning, just based on my evaluation and my guess of where he would test, that pick one hundred was kind of where I saw him. That's right around where Richmond quarterback Kyle Lalletta rose to when the Giants took him a couple of years ago or last year, whichever one it was. And Easton's a better player than Kyle Lalletta, uh, but it just depends on where he slides in with this group of quarterbacks. That, that's my opinion on him, though, is that right as you start to approach that first pick of the fourth round, maybe the last couple picks of the third round, but once you get into round four territory, you should start paying attention to the teams that might need a backup quarterback or have an aging starter. All right, you can find Ross on Twitter, uh, just his first name, last name, at R-O-S-S-U-G-L-E-M. Hey, Ross, thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for the insight after the combine. really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. guess we're going to do a little road trip. What's the worst case scenario? We're What's the worst case scenario? We run out of gas here. Next thing you know, we're drinking our urine. How do you get from running out of gas? The next step is drinking urine. Fastest land animal. 40 miles an hour. The cheetah goes 60 or 65. That is our movie of the week, Paddleton, with Ray Romano, Mark Duplass. It's on Netflix, getting some strong scores from Rotten Tomatoes. If you care about that, right now, this morning, Tuesday morning, at 91% on Tomato Meter, 87% audience score. It just came out, premiered at Sundance maybe five or six weeks ago, and then dropped on Netflix the last week of February. 
very low budget movie. It feels like it's a low budget movie, but not in a bad way at all. I've I, let me compare it to this. I've made it very clear how I feel about Black Klansman. That was a low budget movie, not as low as Paddleton, but Black Klansman was still a low ish budget movie, and it felt like it. It felt like a very super cheap low budget movie. Um, you know, you know who's in Paddleton actually. You know when somebody comes on the screen and you say, who in the hell is that? What was what was he or she in? What movie was he or she in? You pull up IMDb, right? So there's this woman at the hotel that Andy and Michael, Ray Romano, and Mark Duplass stay at. She's actually the woman who plays Luann Delaney in Sons of Anarchy. So that was a really random one. Anyways, it's about a couple of kind of loner guys. I guess you could call them loners. Uh, they're perfectly happy living alone, being alone. And they're neighbors in this subpar apartment complex. And the movie starts with Michael. Again, that's Mark Duplass getting a less than ideal medical diagnosis. It's really slow. It's not very long, maybe an hour and a half or so. But it's a really slow movie. And it's basically just those two on the screen for 90 to 95% of the time, which doesn't work in a lot of cases. It works here. It's called Paddleton because... Um, if you look at the poster, if you look at the trailer, other images, they play this tennis-type racquetball game together at this abandoned drive-in theater. Paddleton, that's the high that's the high motor podcast movie of the week. Highly recommend. I agree with those Rotten Tomatoes ratings. I'd put it in the mid to high eights, probably a mid to high eights out of ten. Uh, it's funny. It's a little uncomfortable, I guess you could say. It kind of pokes at your emotions it, it pokes that and asks that question what would you do if you were in this scenario it's a really good one all right again like i mentioned in the open next week on high motor we're chatting with some guys on the losing end of the most iconic the most well-known the most replayed shots in ncaa tournament history please check that out i think you're going to enjoy it in the meantime check out the podcast on twitter at high motor pod I'm at adowdy 88 Thanks again to Ross and Connor for joining this week's show. And please come back for next week's show. This is the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today, it had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside, the feeling still remained the same. We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in